This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook, and at trevorjamesflutes.com. Hello, I'm Claire Southworth. This is Talking Flutes. Now, last week I chatted with Gareth Davis, principal flute of the LSO, and we didn't have nearly enough time to chat about everything. And so he's back again. Hello, Gareth. I'm sorry, I talk too much, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> no, wonderful. You keep talking. I need you to talk a lot today because we we didn't even touch on your fabulous book, The Show Must Go On, which mm -hmm. is all about uh, being on tour with the LSO, but from two different periods. Do tell us about it. Yeah, I mean, the, the title seems rather ironic at the moment, but the, the show is is going on. Um, it it I, I never sat down and thought, oh, do you know what? I'm going to write a book. I um, way back in ooh, 2006, 2007, um, when sort of digital marketing and stuff was becoming, you know, the, the classical music business sort of woke up and realised that we needed to do something. Um, Joe Johnson, who's our digital manager at the LSO, asked a few people if we would write a blog for the orchestra. And it was called LSO on Tour. It doesn't it doesn't happen anymore, which is a bit of a shame. But um, the idea was that in the LSO, we do, I think, about 70 concerts a year in London and then another 70 concerts around the world. And um, if you're an audience member in London, we have quite a good relationship. You know, you see the same people in the audience. You, you, there are lots of people who become friends of the orchestra who you get to know. And then all of a sudden we just disappear for weeks on end and they don't see us and then suddenly we come back and people had sort of said well you know what what's it like being on tour and of course everybody imagines it's this really glamorous lifestyle uh and um so we started writing this blog um and a few people started doing it but as you've noticed by the fact that we're having to do part two of this podcast i just carried on talking as it were and um and i kind of started just documenting for myself really it was only my experience of what it was like being on tour and of course after a while um we, it was the during the time of Valery Gergiev's um principal conductorship and we would go, we did a whole thing of Prokofiev cycle Prokofiev cycle around the world and and after a while you know I, I started off writing about what it was like to play the classical symphony and the answer in a nutshell is hideous um and um and and after a while, you know, these concerts with Valeri were such a high standard. The blogs eventually became sort of slightly boring. Tonight we did a really great concert. It was slightly faster than last night, you know, uh, and nothing of any note happened apart from it was really good. And nobody wants to read that. It becomes like a really boring match report. So, of course, it started it was all of a sudden there'd be some problem with the buses not arriving at the hotel on time. So all of a sudden we had to go straight to the concert hall or, you know, the lights went out when we did a concert in, in my hometown in the middle of the Tchaikovsky piano concerto. And it wasn't always just things that went wrong, but it was actually, it became, this is actually what it's really like. It's not about going to Paris and having a lovely time in the, in the galleries and then doing a concert and going home. It's really, really hard work. 
um, you know, I, I wanted to I wanted people to know that we we travelled every day. Um, and we went to different cities and different countries every day. And there was no time to to see anything unless you were somewhere very far away. You know, if we go to Japan, you often get some days off and same in America. And they're, they're amazing. You know, when you go to see the giant redwoods in California and on a day off, it's they're, they're the great days. But a lot of it, you know, schlepping around Germany in November in a different place every day, doing the same concert or saying two programs is you know the that the thrill of that wears after after about 20 years uh, anyway I, I was writing this blog and quite enjoying it and people were commenting and you know it was it was becoming quite popular um and it came up to we were going to new york city i mean i've, I've lost count of how many times i've been there now but we we have a well they call it a residency i think i'm not sure you can really say it's a residency but we, we go there every season and um, into uh, we play at the Lincoln Center, and in twenty uh, was it twenty twelve? Yes, twenty twelve. It was exactly a hundred years since the LSO went to New York in nineteen twelve. And as it happened, we were going to New York around the same time. And I thought, oh, this will make a good, you know, nice blog to compare what it's like then and what it's like now. And um, and so I thought I'll, I'd look into it uh, because there was this story in the LSO, uh, which was mentioned in lots of the publicity, that the LSO was meant to go on Titanic. Now, obviously, the LSO didn't go on t- Titanic, or we probably wouldn't be having this conversation now because it wouldn't exist. But I thought it's such a good story, but I couldn't find anything about it. And and I remember thinking, well, this would be this could be a really good blog because how much has changed since the orchestra had to go on a boat, which took two weeks to get there, and it now takes us what five hour flight, six hour flight, depending on the wind. And um, and I remember telling our managing director that I was going to look up look up this story. <laughs> the only thing she said to me was, "Just make sure you don't find it's not true, <laughs> because it's <laughs> it's such a good story." Um, anyway, I, I I thought this would be quite interesting. And I happened to mention it to Libby, who is our archivist. And she has all these amazing things in the archivist, like Leonard Bernstein's tail suit and his baton and Colin Davis's scores and, and just all this amazing stuff and photographs going back. And I said, I'd love to have a look in the archive to see if there's anything there. And she basically gave me the key. Um, and she said, but I think you might be interested in this. And it was one of those amazing moments of serendipity where Somebody had called the LSO, as, as people do regularly, clearing out an attic of an elderly relative, saying, oh, I found all these programmes from the 1950s, would you like them? Uh, and things like that. And uh, to cut a very long story short, uh, a lady had got in touch with the orchestra and her, I think her great uncle had died and she found a box in his house and it was of her great-grandfather who was called Charles Turner, and he was the timpani player in the LSO, the, the original timpani player. And he got a box of memorabilia of various stuff, some of which, uh, you know, we'd already got in the archive, a few programmes and stuff like that. But there was this tiny little diary. It was about, it's one of those, you know, tiny little pocket ones that has a little pencil that sticks in the end. It's about like seven or eight centimetres tall. She said, you might be interested in this. And it was, I opened it up and it had been presented to Charles Turner for help because he'd been conducting like the Bromley Choral Society or something. And um, and in it, it was all written in really faint pencil, but it was his personal diary of 
1912 tour. And we had a few stories. There'd been stories uh, from the time that had been written up in a book for the 50th anniversary of the LSO. But this was like a first hand account and it went day by day by day. And it was really difficult to read. And I said, oh, yeah, we should we should look at this. And Libby, in her brilliance, had already sat down, gone through the whole thing and typed it all out so I could read it. And anyway, I read this diary several times and it was just amazing. And of course, because, you know, things were very different back then. But because this guy had written this diary just for himself, I mean, you know, this was the LSO was the first ever European orchestra to go to America. And they didn't go again until the 60s after this trip because of the First World War, Second World War, the Great Depression. And then, of course, jet travel made it better. But it took them two weeks to get there and two weeks to get back. You know, it's a long time just even <laughs> traveling. But because this diary was for him to remember it, I presume, there were no other diaries. And also maybe to tell his family about it. It was unbelievably rude about the conductor. He moaned about the trains. He moaned about the food. He described going on all these, two, they went to Niagara Falls, you know, and they had to do all this stuff. And I read it and I thought, this is just like my blog. It's basically the same kind of, you think this is fun? Well, we'll see what we have to put up with kind of thing, you know? And, um, and, and I, I basically just saw the similarities, you know, the, travel is the, obviously a big thing. And they, they had to travel on a train around America and they had to travel on it, eat on it, sleep on it. Um, and it, it sounds pretty grim. There were five of them to uh, little cabins and stuff like that. And um, and basically the, the book sort of follows chronologically the story of the 1912 tour. I won't spoil it for you, but um, uh, suffice it to say the LSO didn't go on Titanic, but they, they were originally supposed to. Um, and, um, and then in between each chapter, that is um, my experiences with similar kind of things, traveling around America, ordering weird food, um, and uh, and then just descriptions of the concert. So, you know, for, for flute players, there's a there's quite a lot of fluty stuff in there about, we did Lapri Midi on that tour as well, um, quite a lot, and what it's like to play that, uh, what it's like to suffer whiplash from playing the classical symphony, um, and just generally, you know, if you're interested in history, history of music, history of orchestras, or, or just what it's like to play in a professional orchestra now and then, then it's, you know, it was quite well received, I think. So, um, and yeah, I've sent it off to a publisher, well, several publishers, and much to my amazement, they went, yeah, yeah, we'll publish this. So I was like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's it's a fantastic read, so I can recommend it to to all our listeners. But you've developed this further, haven't you? Because you now do you 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 sort of go on tour with the show, don't you? And you do sort of readings and and performances. Yeah, I mean, I have done. I, I when it came out, you know, it's this was all new to me. Uh, you know, it's funny because um, when you do when you play in a concert, you finish the concert, and so far, touch wood everybody's always clapped. I mean, I think, especially in Britain, nobody, even if they thought it was rubbish, they'd probably still clap, you know? But 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 at the end of your period of work, everybody says, that was great, well done, really enjoyed that. And um, I was really excited about a book coming out because it was, you know, uh, it was a really new thing for me and not something I'd expected to do. And it turned out I was all right at writing as well. Um, and I've, you know, I've done quite a lot since as well. And um, what was amazing was, you know, of course, you had, we had a sort of launch at 
LSO St. Luke's and we made a little film about it with Tommy Pearson where we were in New York talking about it and went to some of the places they went and and then um, there's this massive thing called launch day and you know it's a I think it's always a Thursday in the book trade which again I didn't know uh, and of course hundreds of books come out every week and I thought here we go and it's getting really excited today's launch day and then it's launch day and it's like oh nothing happens there's nothing there nobody claps nothing happens and then you sit there for days and days and days and think well, nothing happens and i was thinking well how long would it take to read it if you bought it on a first day you know and of course uh, nothing happens and then you go in your local bookshop and it's not even in there <laughs> and, uh, but then i do i do remember going uh, i mean it was a big thrill going into um the big waterstones in Piccadilly and and there's my book and it was next to a book or the autobiography of Gareth Edwards and which was the thing that made me the most pleased um that finally I got so close to greatness with the great Welsh players um but um yeah I mean I did when it came out there are a few book festivals and things like that where you have to go along and talk and and um and it and it's quite good fun you know I I, I went to the um Oh, crikey where did I go well all over the place actually talking about it and then I do a little bit of playing and I'd read from it and just sort of talk about things and, and answer questions that people always had you know people always have questions about playing in an orchestra which is why I think one of the reasons why it was popular because it it doesn't dispel it dispel any myths but you know people people want to know you know do you have to do the double basses have to carry their own instruments and think you know perfectly reasonable questions about the nitty-gritty of, of how you organize it all and the answer is no they don't by the way um but um yeah I mean I, I sort of went along and then it and then it's developed into writing education projects and family concerts for the LSO and I wrote a documentary for Classic FM which I presented and I've done some you know various bits of presenting and stuff for Radio 3 and interviewing lots of conductors before concerts, which is always fascinating. I mean, there's some of those bits in the in the book as well. So it's yeah, it's it's been a not not quite a second career, but it's all related to what I do. But I must admit the thing I've enjoyed the most about writing is the fact that I can sit here at home like I am now. Or I can do it on a train or I mean, that was, I can do it wherever I am in the world with my laptop, which is is really is really nice. And there was definitely a lot of what I wrote was to do with I mean, I wrote on the road and it was when my kids were all smaller. And there's a definite element of, you know, writing, writing home to them and writing home to my family to go, this is what I'm doing <laughs> and and trying to create some pictures with words rather than just sending you know the inevitable snapshots back is it's nice it's nice to look back on those things but um yeah it's it's sort of moved on from there which is it's been nice and i'm trying very slowly to write a second book but it's uh it's i'm gonna ask you about that <laughs> slow going <laughs> but there's no other diary so no i i it'll be wonderful if you if you did a follow-up i think it's been a great snapshot of what it's like to be in an orchestra today and it's so good for any any sort of up-and-coming uh, musicians I mean I, re I remember when I was freelancing I, I didn't really have any idea I mean I, you, you don't know so I actually I played with the LSO on and off for about six years mm -hmm. when they didn't have a, a second flute and there was Frank on piccolo and oh, yeah. um, and Peter Lloyd and Paul had just got the had just got the job mm -hmm. and I remember 
the first one of the first tours was going around Switzerland for seven days, which was yeah. just as you just said that you you played every day and you literally yeah. traveled, did a quick sort of check, sound check, got change, ate something and played, slept and then moved on the next morning. We did this for seven days, which was yeah. exhausting. And then yeah. we flew back into Heathrow. That was the end of my stint. Mm. And the orchestra went straight to the festival hall or the yeah. barber, I've forgotten where they were going, to literally got flew to, into Heathrow, went to the hall and did the same thing with the new programme. Oh, and yeah. Thinking, I need to go home and have a sleep. Yeah. And, and it, I mean, it, it, it's funny, actually, because, um, look, it, I mean, every, every time I've been abroad uh, and... Uh, sh- you know, talk, of course, when orchestral flute players get together at these various things, the discussion is always how much you get paid and how much you have to work for it. And the, the looks of horror on people's faces at the way British orchestras, and it's not, it's not just the LSO, you know, the way British orchestras have to work yes. um, just, to, just to keep your head above water. I mean, I've done, I've done days and days and days without having a day off. And, and sometimes it sounds like you're just trying to sound macho and it's not, I don't want to. It's just, that's the way it is. You know, often there'll be, if you have three concert programmes, they'll be tied to a tour, which is tied to something else. And so it covers three months periods. But in between that, there's other things. And I think that's my biggest, my biggest thing for young players coming in is that you cannot underestimate the speed at which you have to be able to produce the goods because you know when you're when you're in youth orchestra certainly in my youth orchestra we used to rehearse for a term now granted it's only it's only once a week of course but you had that music and it gradually seeped into your bones over weeks and weeks and weeks and then you do one concert at the end and it would be really cool you know it's great so that's my dog going mad in the background because the postman has arrived yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> but you then go to music college and then maybe you might work on the same program for two weeks. It's slightly less now. But in in the professional orchestra, we will do a program in three days, sometimes two. And you might not know that music. Then the very next day you start the next one. You don't have a t- time off. So it's just one project after another. And and the thing is, is as you say, when you you know, when you go around Switzerland for seven days, that's tiring because there's all those buses and twisty roads and it's the same you know sometimes when you go to China and you're doing a different concert every day and and just go thinking I'll just nip out and grab a sandwich suddenly that takes on that's like a an adventure um and then you've got all this music and it's just hard work and then you go on to the next thing so we I've often experienced um young players coming into the orchestra and you know they've been booked I know two months in advance for their trial or whatever and they'll come in it'll be standard repertoire let's say Beethoven 5 and Brahms violin concerto and marriage of Figaro overture right like old I mean we never do programs like that actually but you know a real sort of standard boring program and um and they probably played one or two of those pieces before maybe in youth orchestra well you should forget that because it's nothing like that and of course you they'll have been able to prepare it really well 
and they'll turn up and there won't be very much rehearsal because it'll be Beethoven five and the orchestra can play it in their sleep. It will be a case of what the conductor wants to do on certain places. So you will feel under rehearsed and then you do the concert and you'll hopefully be a raring success. And that's great. And then the next day you've got the next project and maybe they prepared that as well because they were booked for that. And then the next project and that will be different music. And and it gets to the point, eventually, everybody reaches a point where you just have to live on your wits because you do not have time to practice. <laughs> it's been quite funny because when lockdown started, of course, loads of people have put up so many videos of how to play this and about breathing exercises and stuff like that. And, and I have to say, I've watched some of them and they've been really informative. I've learned some stuff, certainly. And certainly sometimes I do things and think, oh, that's how I do it. <laughs> and I've never actually had to think about why I do it, you know, um, which isn't always a good thing. And but there have been times when I just thought, uh, you know, like the when I've got oh, no, I haven't even got my daily exercises out of my music stand anymore. That pretense has gone. But, you know, the the whole, oh, I need to do this and I do this. And I remember, I mean, I was lucky enough to to be on the I went to Ramsgate which I think I saw you on a very long time ago yes yeah in 1988 <laughs> it was Great. and I, I've got the photo somewhere but I played with Jeffrey I was in Jeffrey's class which what? was wonderful uh, it was it was just it was a real life-changing thing for me and, um, and I got to I, I played and I've got this awful photograph which you will never see um and um and I'm wearing converse boots and these t really small blue and white stripy shorts and a snoopy sweatshirt i don't know why i was 15 and i don't i think my voice hadn't broken or was just about to i can't remember and i played in his class and he was talking about all these exercises that he does every day and he goes through these scales and stuff and he was so lovely and i got to play in the evening class i played the tulu 13th grand solo and i've got a cassette of it at home here somewhere and he was so encouraging but he was you know, he had this method, didn't he? And he had all these exercises and stuff. And I just don't get time to do that. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I don't, I don't have uh, a thing, a, a routine like that. I mean, funnily enough, um, I'm, I'm often asked if to do a warm up class at places. And I always say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Because I literally just, I'd have to make something up to do it. And I remember when I was when I was chairman of the orchestra for a while, I had two phones. It was hideous. And I had this orchestra Blackberry, which just buzzed at me all the time. And uh, Gareth McLernan came in and, and, and played next to me. And one day we did a live Star Wars at the Abbott Hall. And he's as obsessed with Star Wars as I am. And he's the the Haynes rep. Um, and I play I play on a Haynes flute, which you know, I just love playing on. And and he he came and, and played that. And somebody, we were at a flute day, and somebody said, uh, Gareth, what's your daily warm-up? And and Gareth said, I can answer that for you. What's that? He said, Gareth's warm-up is this. <laughs> he got out his phone and he pretended to send about five emails and then just started playing. <laughs> that was kind <laughs> of it. It's, it's not, I mean, it's not right, kids. You shouldn't do that. But um but the reality is, if I spent all my time practicing everything to the level at which I did at the beginning of my career and did all my daily exercises, uh, there literally aren't enough hours in the day because we often start work at 10, 9 in the morning and then we, we don't finish till 10 at night. Um, and that could be days on end, working three session days. It's, it's really hard work. And I, and I don't think that people always realise 
that the, the, how, how punishing it is, you know. No, and you haven't even mentioned the fact that everyone expects this incredible level of mm. performance as well. I mean, you, you can't have a duff day. No, I mean, there are days when you, there are definitely days when you play better than others, yeah. but I think that you have, it's at a, it's at a level that's, that has to be so high. Cause I know there's, you know, there's kids behind me who will kick my backside and I have to keep on top of everything to make sure I don't have those days. And I'm also actually, I'm, I'm to be honest, you know, one day I'll have to stop because it's just, I mean, I remember you mentioned the great Peter Lloyd, you know, he, when he was 50, he, he, I think he retired from the LSO. He thought that was it. I'm not going to, not going to do that anymore. That's me next year. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I'm, I'm that guy now. <laughs> I'm, I'm not the young up and coming flute player. And it, it's been a blink of an eye, mm. but um, the thing that motivates me more, it's going to sound a bit weird. It, it's not actually the thought of being kicked out. You know, we all have our moment and mine won't last forever. That's fine. I can live with that. But I know that when I go around the world and play a Mahler symphony or Beethoven nine or your marriage of Figaro or the Brahms violin concerto, or one of those amazing landmarks in classical music, there's going to be somebody in that audience that's never heard that piece before. Yeah. And it's going to have their mind blown and that there's a responsibility that comes with playing and looking after this music for, because, you know, I can't remember the first time I heard Beethoven 9. I do remember the first time I heard Mahler 9, as we discussed <laughs> the other day. Um, but, um, you know, to hear those pieces, it's got to be, you, you, you know, you want it to be special. You want, you, no matter, I mean, the LSO kind of, it's weird. We can have the worst days. I mean, we had some, we've had awful days where we got stuck in the snow. There's been flight problems. We've had to turn back to base because the engine stopped working on the plane. Um, and, and then you suddenly, you get there and it's like, what should have been a relatively, you know, yeah, you get up early, but we should have got to, got to the hotel, had, had lunch, maybe had time just to, you know, relax for a little bit and then rehearse and then do the concert suddenly you're arriving 25 minutes before the rehearsal should have started and it's a 45 minute journey and you know you know the seating rehearsal is just really to check that everybody's got a seat and we can all see and everything everybody's there you know we don't we've already done the concert so that's not the issue but you're turning up you're not in the right frame of mind but you the orchestra goes on stage and, and sometimes those have been some of the best concerts it's almost like the orchestra's bloody minded about it and gone right come on let's mm. let's do this you know because there is a great pride in in you know the orchestra wants to play well we don't want to play badly it, it's 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 really important but yeah keeping it at that top level all the time is 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 hard work punishing i would think you know and and for 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 people like me who used to just sort of flit in and out we thought it was difficult um to keep a level but it was nothing like the, the the main members who have to do it night after night after night. I was yeah. 
I was I was in awe of them. It was incredible. Now listen. Well, that, that's true, Claire. To be to be fair to you, I think you do yourself down slightly because I think it's also very hard to come in to a machine that's a well-oiled machine that's rolling, and you have to jump in, and you have to fit in, and that that's actually quite that's more difficult than your you're just brushing that aside and actually there's an e there's an ease that comes with just doing it all the time that's why this this lockdown has been so difficult because we're now going in and doing concerts and working for two days and then i don't have any work for two weeks that i'm finding that much more difficult than just when i'm doing it all the time there are other problems about doing that but actually i think doing a bit and then going somewhere else or you know going back and teaching and doing stuff and then having to come back in again i think that's that's also difficult just a different kind of difficulty yeah um, i mean, i do remember there were there were difficulties the main one being that i lived in manchester hmm. was working in london and yeah, I remember yeah. some wonderful journeys, especially when and things like when a a two o'clock rehearsal maybe was suddenly changed to ten o'clock, <sighs> and uh, and I'd be in Manchester and have to zoom down in my car. But anyway, that's a whole other story. Now, <laughs> you talked about some some lovely pieces. If you could pick one orchestral concert program, which pieces would you pick? Your favorite? What would be a your favorite? Oh, how program? how long could it be? <laughs> However long you like. I have to say, well, when I um, when I was on trial for the LSO, I did lots of things, and you know, Paul Davis was was the other principal, and so a lot of the stuff I came on was tour. So we would share a program, and he was very he was very nice because I I have a lot of reasons to be grateful to Paul. Um, apart one, he he was my teacher, and he was a really inspiring kind of. Uh, he was like it was such an inspiring person to be your teacher you know and obviously his playing that goes without saying but but also when I came in to the LSO he was so welcoming and, and helpful and not just in the obvious ways about making sure you know I wasn't just standing around on my own being feeling stupid you know we, I was invited out with him and his friends even though you know it's having an extra person in your gang sometimes that's a bit tricky you know but he was just like yeah come on and also the the repertoire there were things there were things that he gave me to play that I know he would have liked to have done himself but he knew that it would be helpful for, for a trialist to be able to do it and so actually my the, the last concert I did before I got the job it was one of those ones when they told me what the repertoire was I'd been on trial for two years and I thought hmm I think this is this is really coming towards the end. And so, I, I mean, as a programme, it's a lovely programme, but it was for a Pelias and Melisande suite, of course, with the famous flute yeah, solos yeah. in, the Ravel Piano Concerto, and then in the second half, Daphnis and Chloe. And uh, it was a wonderful programme, and I have really happy memories, but I do remember it was... It was I played Daphnis once, and that was in YMSO, as a dep when somebody else was ill about eight years earlier mm -hmm. um and so the first time i really played it i mean that was literally going in at a concert and just playing it having never played it before mm -hmm. so the first time i played it was on trial in the lso the sound of the orchestra i mean you know you learn that excerpt over and over again but playing it in an orchestra is just it's just amazing because it's not that difficult either you know as as solos go it's it's a rewarding one to play and 
And but I played that and it was nice. But in the rehearsal, you know, as they often did, they they on the day of the concert, they did the big piece first and then gradually got smaller. <clears throat> and of course, the Peleus and Melisande is a really small orchestra yeah. and Daphnis is huge. And they when we finished Daphnis, he said, the conductor, I can't, sadly, I can't even remember who was conducting now. That's terrible, isn't it? Um, he said, uh, OK, we'll we'll just go straight on to the Peleus before the break and then we'll do the Ravel afterwards. And so a half the orchestra, it's, well, it's probably more than half the orchestra, got up and left the stage. And then almost all of them, instead of going to get a cup of coffee, went and sat in oh, the no. stalls. And I was thinking, oh, no. It, I mean, it felt like it probably, I'm sure, knowing the orchestra now, it won't have been the whole orchestra. But, um, you know, it was certainly a lot of the wind players who weren't in it and, and everybody and they all sat in the stalls and I just thought okay this is not a rehearsal <laughs> it's uh I've got to really really play you know and it went I mean it went really well and actually they still didn't offer me the job for another few months but, <laughs> but there you go um but I mean that I have a really fond memory of that I think I, I think I've played Lapri Midi so many times I quite happily not, not play it again although I think it would be very very fun to transpose it by a semitone um, and, and, you know, at least 60% of the orchestra in the audience wouldn't really notice. And then it would just be so delicious when the harp and oboes and everybody comes in on the wrong chord. That would be quite fun. Probably won't do that unless I'm definitely sure I'm going to retire. But um, I think, I think the, the pieces that I've, that have meant, that have meant the most to me that I would like to play, it would be the Mahler symphonies, particularly I mean, number two is great fun because I've got such happy memories. It's such a life-affirming piece. Um, I think uh, uh, Marla 9 and Marla 10 are probably my favourites to play. I mean, they're not even, you know, it's not about solos. It's just about the way, I, I mean, of course, solos are fun, but the way the orchestra sounds, the, the, the opening to the, the Ninth Symphony with that sort of stuttering horn figure and then the strings come in and it's just this, I sit there every time, I can feel it now in my body, that feeling of the strings do that. Oh, and it just, and it's, oh, I love the sound of the string section. I just love it. I, I really love it. And um, so it would, it would definitely be a big orchestral piece. I think let's say, let's say, Mar I mean, Marla 10 a bit angst ridden. I think probably too much, but, but, but Marla 9, I think probably that would be, that, that would be the piece that I would, that's certainly the piece that I will miss playing the most being part of yeah and of course it's very different for you because when you're in the midst of the orchestra i mean you're in the best position aren't you right in the middle of the orchestra yes yeah, yeah. it's very different to to that that the audience gets i mean you're sort of yeah. enveloped in this incredible sound i tell you what's been really interesting in lockdown is that we're we're playing socially distanced you can mm. see you know there's lots of it on the lso youtube channel um but we we've sort of experimented about where to sit. And um, so the brass are often up in the balconies. Um, but um, when Simon was with us right at the beginning of this process, you know, it just wasn't together. And we tried to think things and thought, well, you know, this is for broadcast. It's not for an audience. So we don't actually all need to be sat so that the people over there can see us because the cameras are all around us. And so we got to the point where he, he's not quite standing in the middle of the orchestra, but he sort of moved forward several feet so that some of the first violins are actually, they've moved, they swapped the leader and the, the front desk around on, on the cellos on the 
and the first violins so that the leader's actually on the inside but he's he actually has if he wants to cue in all the first violins he has to actually turn around past 180 degrees to see where they are um and it, it has helped of course because he's not he can hear more the sound of the orchestra but what's been amazing is it's changed how pieces sound for me because i'm so used to hearing everything where it normally is i mean you know some conductors like split for split violin so the second sit at the front on one side and the first on the other and sometimes they sit next to each other well that changes the sound quite a lot from where i'm sat but this is i mean i've heard parts of the the first violin part i thought oh I had, I had no idea that was happening, you know, kind of almost. <laughs> and it's, it's good to remember, you know, because it's very easy to to play your part, you know, in isolation, um, especially with excerpts. I mean, people, uh, well, speaking of Mile and Nine, you know, the the famous excerpt at the end of the first movement, that like, da 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 the number of people say, oh, yeah, that flute solo. And I'm like, it's not a solo. It's not a solo. <laughs> it's part of a trio. And if you play it all like it's you're the most important person, I mean, I've heard that many times, you know, where, where all three instruments just do their own thing. And it's a really intricate rhythmical and harmonic framework that it, that it sits in. And you have to get it all in the right place and you have to listen to what the other person is doing. So, you know, it's important to hear, of course, what everything is going on. But, yeah, I mean, how I think pieces sound and how they actually sound are two different things. It's quite I think it's quite healthy just to have a bit of a shake up. The fact that you've had to record and sit in different places um, mm. makes it quite refreshing. Yeah, it's been it's been a challenge, that's for sure. Yeah. And we're about we're about to record the complete Beethoven piano concertos with Simon conducting and Christian Zimmerman playing, and you know that's going to be a challenge because of how we have to sit. And and, and quite frankly, at the moment, you know, well, as we're making this, we're about to announce on Thursday what the tier system's going to be. So we, you know, we it, it's still. I mean. We have an online schedule now and it's it's changing every day about what's going to happen next year and you know things keep disappearing and then other things appear and you think oh okay right we'll do that then so um yeah i mean everything at the moment is a learning experience but in terms of music that's that's always a good thing if you if you always just turn up and think right this is how it goes then that's really boring you know yeah. Now, it's, it's interesting with what you were just saying, because, of course, um, there was a big hoo-ha when someone in the government said um, that maybe some of us should retrain <laughs> because because there was no work. So if you hadn't been a musician, what would you be doing? What would we be doing now? I'm supposed to work in IT, aren't I? <laughs> Is that what they suggested? Um, yeah. it, it's funny because I remember, I, I can't remember whether we spoke about this before but I had a you know what the things we've talked about that that I have to do and I'm not you know I'm not unique um there are lots of people that do all sorts of things and extra bits around even if it's just teaching you know I mean that's a massive thing a huge responsibility you know um and some people do that and and that's everything and you know I mean I I take my hat off I'm I'm in awe of the watching people who teach full-time with the way that this system works. And I think, God, I wish I could be that organised. And and this 
and the knowledge of the repertoire, which I just don't have in the solo repertoire. You know, I, I don't I don't know everything because I can't mm. because I'm too busy doing all the other stuff. And that's, okay. you know, I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm a specialist like that. But what's interesting is the skills. I mean, I've been talking to my my boys about this, the, the, the skills you have to have, because, of course, as I think we mentioned, I, we're all self-employed. So I'm effectively running my own business. So I have to do my own accounts and all the VAT and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and then you have to organize your schedule. And, you know, the more the, the more different places you work, the more complicated that is. If you teach as well, you've got to figure out when you can fit that in. And then suddenly somebody phones up and says, can you record this at home? And you think, yeah, that's easy. Oh, let me check when I'm home. Um, and can I do that? And just most musicians are really interesting people and they've all got other interests outside and are doing other things. But all those skills, when you put them all together and you write them in CV speak, quite useful and i believe it's called transferable skills um <laughs> what would i do if i wasn't a musician i absolutely have no idea i have no idea i mean there are lots of things i'd like to do. Uh, yeah i'd like to be a writer but that's probably even harder than being a musician i would say or a rugby player. i mean you know, oh definitely i mean i would love to have been a rugby player but you know everybody else carried on growing and i just didn't really so um <laughs> As I said, I didn't really ever think, oh, I think I want to be a musician. It just sort of happened. And I like to think, oh, it just sort of happened. But I think it just sort of happened because there was no other option. It was something I had to do. And I've had many people ask me, you know, what should I, what, I'm not sure whether to be a musician or not. I said, if you're not sure, don't do it. Because the hours are crap, the pay's crap. And, you know, it's a really precarious lifestyle. And sometimes you can lose your work on somebody else's whim. You know, if somebody else comes along who somebody else thinks is better than you or they prefer or they're whatever, that, there's nothing you can do about it. It's just what happens. You just have to, you know, <clears throat> I've always tried to do various bits. I mean, I've, I've been in the LSO for a long time, but I've always tried to do other bits and pieces as well. But only bits that interest me because I'm so busy. I don't want to just fill my time with everything, you know. But I mean, I've had people say, you know, I, I'm not sure I'm either going to go to music college to be a flute player or I'm going to do accountancy <clears throat> and you know they're sitting in their parents massive house because their parents are accountants and of course having a massive house isn't necessarily the you know that's not what motivates me but but if 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 you're already not sure about whether you should do it don't do it have it as a hobby you know enjoy it it's a wonderful gift and and actually uh, it, having people that just play for fun it's amazing. I mean, lots of them have got much better, you know, more expensive instruments than I have as well. <laughs> it's amazing, you know, and, and if, if that's what you want to do, it's fine because it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to do what you love and your hobby as a job as well, because there's never really a, there's never really a gap. You know, I like listening to music because I love me because I like music. So it's kind of, so in answer to what would you do? I actually, I genuinely don't know. I would love to be a writer, but I'm, I suspect I'm, in love with the idea of what being a writer is like and i know enough writers to know that it actually means sitting on your backside shutting out the world and just getting on with it every single day um, well i'm sure you're going to be writing a lot more though in in the future it yes like it. yeah definitely yeah. it's interesting you know because i we we did a, a new piece by mark anthony turnage recently mm. and um and i interviewed him a while ago about composing and 
you know, this, this sort of the Western idea of an artist is that you have to suffer and you have to, you know, be terribly upset about something at all times and and then, you know, work by the light of a candle in an attic, preferably uh, with no heating. Um, and it's awful. And it's really difficult. And then you have to sit and you have to just sit for hours waiting for the muse to strike. And I asked Mark about his um, compositional stuff. And I said, how long does it take you to write a piece? He said, it depends how long it is. I think, oh, well, that's obvious. I said, what? So if it's, he said, no, no, I mean, how many bars it is? Like, oh, okay. And he said, I said, what? Well, what's your working day? He said, you know, he said, well, with young kids, he said, I normally get up really early, but I, I don't do that so much now. But he said, well, I, I, if I've got a commission, I go into my room and I sit down at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock or whatever, and I sit there and write, and then I stop for lunch. And then after lunch, I write until whatever and then I stop and then the next day I start where I left off and then one of those days the piece is finished I said that must feel amazing what do you do then he said well I start on the next one I said what on the same day he said well it depends what the time is and, it's, and I think you know that, that doesn't fit with the sort of narrative of what an artist is but that the, that's actually the reality of these things you know that that you have to just you, I'm, I've never really believed in writer's block. Every time I think, well, I haven't got any ideas, I'm thinking well, that's because I haven't actually sat down at my desk and tried to write something. So, you know, it's cruel, but it's probably true. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so there's only one more question to ask then, Gareth, and I'll let you get on with your day, which is, what's a question that you always wish you'd been asked in an interview? <laughs> I think well, you've asked them all. <laughs> silence. <laughs> yeah, I don't, do you know what? I don't actually... I don't actually know. What's what's the one question I've... No, that's I mean, that's really useless. I haven't ruined your podcast now by yeah. being the only person not to come up with that answer. No, so I've I did... never asked it before. <laughs> oh, but no, you said, I don't, I don't actually know. I mean, I'm always interested. I've been asked the same questions many, many times, but... It's interesting because you, we, we, we talk to lots of people and we, we try and go with the flow with a little bit of a framework. And yeah. I always wonder, oh, I hope we 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 mentioned everything and they're not going away thinking, oh, if only they'd asked that. So the hence the no, I, Yeah, no, I don't think so. I mean, I've kind of gone fairly off-piste as well around your questions as well as hopefully answering them anyway. But, um, yeah, we've covered a lot, which has absolutely it's been absolutely brilliant, fantastic for people to listen to. And um, I must say that if for the people listening, if they go on your website, they can hear you play La Primidi, and they can yep. hear, see little clips from the show must go on and some of your interviews with with conductors so yeah well worth a visit and also you talked about the LSO YouTube channel yes also hear you there's a lot there there's also there's a, a new film I've just um been in um which comes out uh, later this week um, which uh, we filmed during lockdown and it's uh, featuring a brand new piece that was written for me to play and uh, for flute and loop pedal in a very exciting, in a, in a empty office space, which uh, when I say, when I say empty, 
it's literally empty. I mean, it hasn't got any walls. It's just girders and stuff. And it's got this huge, huge reverb in it. And uh, Jasmine, the composer, wrote this piece specially to play in there. And it's got it's got dancers in it. And it's just a sort of artistic statement for right now. So that, that'll be on all the LSO things as well. So you'll be able to see that. But it's quite a, it's a really not, I mean, I've seen it. It's a really nice film and it's kind of like, it's quite uplifting and and it's a nice it's a nice piece it's only three minutes long you know it's very short but um it, it was quite fun so yeah but there's lots of stuff you know that the lso does that you can find and, and you should have a look at where simon as well if you haven't seen that especially for younger players um he was a good laugh doing that <laughs> yeah all sounds good I'm, i have seen a picture of you in the empty office space but I will certainly look forward to, to going and listening to it. So, Gareth, thank you so much for giving up all this time for us. It's been absolutely fascinating to hear you chat about everything. And yeah, um, looking forward to hearing all the new projects and hopefully get back to some normality by next year. Yeah, I do hope so. And, uh, you know, I would say for everybody listening out there, make sure that when you when things get back to normal, that wherever you are, you go and support your local orchestra because, you know, this country is so fortunate to have so many world-class orchestras everywhere. Nobody's very far away from one. And it's too easy to just assume that because they've been there a long time that they'll always be there. And this pandemic shown that that's not the case. And, um, you know, it's a kind of case of use it or lose it. And you'll find that most people in orchestras are total enthusiasts. And when people write to me or send me a message on Facebook or something, I always answer. It sometimes takes me a while, but I do always answer. And, um, you know, uh, and I'm always happy uh, as are most people to, to help. So, you know, uh, that's just make sure you please support the orchestras because everybody's going to need you more than ever now. Thanks so much, Gareth. Um, hopefully maybe chat to you maybe next year and see, see where things have, have developed then. Yes, that would be great. Until then, have, a, have a, a great few months and a lovely Christmas. Yes. Oh, yes, that's coming soon, isn't it? Yes, of course. I thought it was still the summer. It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks for chatting us, to us. Yeah, thank you, too. You take care. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.